You're listening to Tahlequah United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the podcast and connect with us online at TahlequahUMC.org. May you be blessed by the hearing and reading of Scripture and the meditation on the Word. Have a good day. It's always good to be Please pray with me. God of love, may the word of my mouth and the meditations of my heart give you the honor and the glory. Amen. I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and then I'm going to jump down and read one more verse, verse 41. Hear these words. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven like the howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya, boarding Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine. Peter stood With the other 11 apostles, he raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this. Listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness, and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes, when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 41, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. God brought about 3,000 people into the community on that day. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 1926, a wealthy Toronto lawyer named Charles Vance Miller died, leaving behind him a will that amused and electrified the citizens of the Canadian province. Miller, who was a bachelor and had a wicked sense of humor, stated clearly that he intended his last will and testament to be a very uncommon 
document. Because he had no close heirs to inherit his fortune, he divided his money and properties in a way that amused him and aggravated his newly chosen heirs. Here are just a few examples of his strange bequests. He left shares in the Ontario, Ontario Jockey Club to two prominent men who were all well known for their opposition to racetrack betting. He bequeathed shares in the O'Keefe Brewery Company, a Catholic beer manufacturer, to every Protestant minister in Toronto. But his most famous bequest was that he would leave the bulk of his fortune to the Toronto woman who gave birth to the most children in the 10 years after his death. This clause in his will caught the public imagination, as you can imagine. The country was entering the Great Depression. As people struggled to meet even their most basic economic responsibilities, the prospect of an enormous windfall was naturally quite alluring. Newspaper reporters scoured the public records to find likely contenders for what became known as the Great Stork Derby. Nationwide excitement over the Stork Derby built quickly. So in 1936, four mothers, proud producers of nine children apiece in a 10-year span, divided up the Charles Miller's bequest, each receiving what was staggering sum in those days, $125,000. Charles Miller caused much mischief with his will. This was his final legacy to humanity. When Jesus of Nazareth left the earth, he left a different kind of legacy to his followers. He left his Holy Spirit to comfort, to guide, to empower them, to be all that God had called them to be. Today, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. Happy birthday, church. You see, after the crucifixion, the disciples had been afraid. If you'll remember, they were afraid for their lives, and, and they went up to the upper room behind closed doors and locked the doors. They were so, so scared. Now, they were afraid no longer. The coming of the Holy Spirit transformed the disciples from fear to confidence. The Holy Spirit gave them the courage to go out into Jerusalem and dec declare the resurrection of Jesus to a city whose people had so recently called for his death. The Peter we read about in Acts seems very different from the Peter of the Gospels. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit had refined and honed his good qualities and pared away the bad. The courage to speak out, for example, remained, but the words spoken are no longer impulsive and without thought, but strong, considerate, and wise words. But he was still Peter. The Holy Spirit had not destroyed his essential self and replaced it with something new and alien. His basic personality remained the same, but had been refined and strengthened so that he became closer not only to what God wanted him to be, but closer also to what he himself wanted to be. Peter's undoubted courage was demonstrated on several occasions in the Gospels, but while Peter trusted in his own strength, he, he, it inevitably let him down at the crucial time and led him to deny Jesus. The same courage, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, became infin infinitely dependable and sure. 
In today's reading, we heard how Peter quoted the prophet Joel, who said that God's Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all who believe. The Holy Spirit does not enter us unmasked, but if we truly wish to receive it, it is there for each one of us for the asking. And if we truly want the Holy Spirit to enter our lives, it will be because we want to change and we'll be welcome the changes that the Spirit will bring. It will also mean that we have recognized our inability to bring these changes about on our own and have realized our need for God's grace. If the Holy Spirit had not come upon the apostles at Pentecost, it is probable that Christianity would never have spread very far. Those who had known Jesus, had followed him, would have held on to their belief, and certainly for a while, maybe, in, maybe till the end of their lives. At best, Christianity would have lingered on as a sect of Judaism, which was itself a minority religion, not actively seeking con converts. Possibly in time, Christianity would have merged back into mainstream Judaism. Erasmus, the famous Renaissance scholar, once told a classic story which was designed to emphasize how important it, it is that we take up the torch of Christ's ministry with great commitment. In this story, Jesus returns to heaven after his time on earth, and the angels have all gathered around him to learn all that happened during his days on earth. Jesus tells them about the miracles, about his, his teachings, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And when he finishes the story, Michael the archangel asks Jesus, but what happens now? Jesus answers, I have left behind 11 faithful disciples and a handful of men and women who have faithfully followed me. They will declare my message and express my love. These faith faithful people will build my church. But responsible, Michael responds, what if these people fail? What then? Is there other plan? And Jesus answers, I have no other plan. As the body of Christ, we, like the apostles, remain charged with the duty of preaching the gospel. It is up to us. It is up to me. It is up to you to bring God's world, this wonderful, glorious gospel of love, salvation, and redemption that has sustained and comforted people for 2,000 years. Jesus is counting on you and me. But the good news is, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is here to melt us, to mold us, to fill us, to use us. I can't explain this any better than the way Barbara Brown Taylor wrote it in a Time Magazine article a few years back. She said, before the day was over, <clears throat> the church had grown from 120 to more than 3,000. Shy people had become bold people. Scared people became gutsy, and lost people had found a sure sense of direction. Disciples who had not believed themselves capable of, of tying their own sandals without Jesus discovered abilities within themselves they never knew they had. When they opened their mouths to speak, they sounded like Jesus. When they laid their hands on the sick, it was as if Jesus himself had touched them. In short order, they were doing things they had never seen anyone but him do. And there was no explanation for it, except that they had dared to inhale on the day of Pentecost. They had sucked in God's own breath, and they had been transformed by it. Church, 
we need to ask the Holy Spirit to once again breathe into us. We have a message to share, to deliver. It is quite literally a life or death message that we all need to be a part of. But for some reason, we do not seem to be very effective in delivering it. We need to find the language that will speak to people today, that will reach out and touch their lives and their hearts. We need to do this both as individuals and and, uh, collectively as a church. We need to find that language. My mother and I last night had a conversation for an hour about how a preacher should dress. She said, I see you walk out of here almost daily in jeans and a t-shirt. And she says, I know that there have been friends that have bought you fine clothes. And do they not fit? Or what is wrong? And I said, well, preachers sometimes have to dress in different ways. I said, Jesus didn't wear a dress. And she said, no, but Jesus would have if he was a woman. And I said, not necessarily. I said, we're going to have this discussion later. She says, well, I think we should talk about it now. Dressing the part, the Holy Spirit comes in and moves us. If we try to do it on our own strength, we'll almost certainly get it wrong. I know I have many times. We may try to hold on to things we we ought to change or change things we ought to hold on to. We may be tempted to tell people what we think they want to hear rather than what God knows they need to hear. If we trust in God and let the Holy Spirit guide us, we will be able to give God's unchanging eternal message of love in a way that is new and fresh that we need to share. In my paper that I wrote for the Board of Ordinary Ministry a couple of months ago, the first question that I answered was to give examples of how the practice of ministry has affected my experiences and understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what I wrote. I am fascinated with the Holy Spirit. You can ask any person close to me what I call the Holy Spirit at work, and it's called a God thing. When I have a student come in and tell me something that they think happened was a coincidence, I will look at them, raise my hand, and say, no, I believe that was a God thing. The Bible says, I will ask the Father, and he will send other Another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. John 14, 16 and 17. I know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, not because I have seen it, but because I have seen it at work. The Holy Spirit can be difficult to explain because of the various symbols that represent the Holy Spirit, like fire, wind and the dove we as humans also like to attribute human features to everything when we are unable to do that we have a more difficult time relating to the person persona but nevertheless i have been inspired by the holy spirit on many occasions and through many aspects of my life and ministry one of the great blessings of being a pastor is the opportunity to witness the holy spirit at work on countless occasions I have witnessed the Holy Spirit at work in my life and the people in my church. I have seen people who lived in constant shame of their past realize that they too are a child of God and have the opportunity for a clean slate. I have seen the Holy Spirit transform the life of a young woman addicted to drugs and alcohol by reversing her inclination of relying on a substance to relying on God. I have witnessed a cleansing of her heart and the desire to live a Christian life. Some of you have witnessed that right here with my niece, Jordan. 
I had the blessing of watching God meet a damaged young man where he was and assure him of his identity as a child of God, igniting within him, within him a new love for himself and others. These types of complete heart renewals can only be explained by the constant work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, speaking to us and transforming our hearts and minds, witnessing these types of actions any further, only further confirm my understanding of a God thing or the Holy Spirit. As John Wesley explained, immediate case of all holiness in us. I'll close with this story. A friend of mine sent me after he had read my paper for the Board of Ordained Ministry and had been reviewing it. He sent me an email and said, I believe this is what you're talking about when you describe your God thing. This story is about Marcel Sternberger, who was a methodical man of nearly 50 years old, with bushy white hair, guileless brown eyes, and the bouncing enthusiasm of a, a Hungarian dancer. He always took the 909 Long Island Railroad train from his suburban home to Woodside, New York, where he caught a subway into the city. On the morning of January the 10th, 1948, Sternberger boarded the 909 as usual, en route. He suddenly decided to visit Lasazio Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Bat Brooklyn and was ill. Accordingly, at Ozone Park, Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his Fifth Avenue office. Here is Marcel's incre incredible story. The car was crowded. The subway was crowded that afternoon. And there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave, and I slipped into the empty place. I've been living in New York long enough to not start conversations with strangers. But being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analyzing people's faces. And I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s. And when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian language newspaper. And something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you didn't mind, don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, you may read it now. I'll have time later on. During the half-hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bela Paskin, a law student when World War II started. He had been put into a German labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work buying a, the German, burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Dubrakin, a large city in eastern Hung Hungary. I myself knew Dubrakin quite well, and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment once occupied by his father, his mother, his mother, his brothers and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once ha had. It also was occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family, and he, as he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him, calling, Paskin Basil, Paskin Basil. That means Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbors of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis looked, took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was one of the worst Nazi concentration camps 
and Paskin gave up all hope. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out again on foot, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October of 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman whom I had met recently at the home of friends had also been from Debrocken. She had been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she had been transferred to work in a German ammunitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people. But as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. I asked in what I hoped was a casual voice, was your wife's name Maria? He turned pale. Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hours before Maria passed and answered. Later I learned her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. This time, however, there was no one else at home, and after letting it ring for a while, she decided to respond. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debrocken, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, did you, did you and your wife live on such and such street? Yes, Bela exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened a moment to his wife's voice, and suddenly cried, This is Bela! This is Bela! This is Bela! And he began to mumble hysterically. Seeing that the poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently, I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Maria who also sounded hysterical. I'm sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bela was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife, it is my wife, I go to my wife. At first I thought I had better accompany Paskin, lest the man should faint from excitement, but I decided that this was a moment in which no strangers should intrude. Putting Paskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare, and said goodbye. Bela Paskin's reunion with his wife was a moment so poignant, so electric, with, with suddenly released emotion that afterward neither he nor Maria could recall much about it. I remember only that when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like in a dream, she said, to see if maybe my hair had turned gray. The next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of the house, and it is my husband who comes towards me. Details I cannot remember, only this I know that I was happy for the first time in many, many years. Even now it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much, I have almost lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him away from me again? 
Her husband is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever again befall them. Providence has brought us together, he says simply. It was meant to be. Skeptical persons will no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Marcel Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never ridden before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Vela Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Nah, it was a God thing. I wrote this down a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Matt was preaching. He said, the Holy Spirit is here. If we don't allow it to work, how can we ever do kingdom work? Jesus did not tell his disciples that they would not have problems. In fact, their problems would tower over most of ours today. What he did promise was that peace of mind. He would send upon the gift of the Holy Spirit to give them courage and comfort. The would-be warriors, not warriors. And that is the same promise Christ offers us today. Come, come, Holy Spirit. Melt us, mold us, fill us, use us. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tahlequah United Methodist Church's sermon podcast. We hope you have a good week, and we ask that you connect with us online at TahlequahUMC.org. Thank you, and have a good day.